Welcome to the Why We Argue podcast. I am Matthew Griglia, PhD candidate in history at the University of Connecticut and the producer of the Why We Argue podcast. Why We Argue is brought to you by Humility and Conviction in Public Life, a project of the University of Connecticut, which explores how we balance our deepest commitments with open-mindedness and intellectual humility. The series, which is made possible by the John Templeton Foundation, features interviews with scholars and public figures on the state of political discourse and democracy. Today, our very special episode will feature a conversation between former presidential advisor David Gergen, Rabbi Melissa Weintraub of Resetting the Table, and Ibu Patel of the Interfaith Youth Corps, and it is taken from the Humility and Conviction in Public Life's event, Faith in Politics which was held on April 25th, 2018 at the Wadsworth Athenaeum Museum in Hartford, Connecticut, and was made possible with collaboration from the CT Forum. The conversation you are about to hear is a wide-ranging and fascinating conversation, which covers everything from religious beliefs of former presidents to atheism to the question of ideological diversity on college campuses and in our media. But tonight we're here to have a conversation, a conversation with you about these political ideals, but against the background of one of the areas that means most to us as human beings, religious faith. I can think of no one better suited to moderate this interesting discussion than NPR host and executive editor of the New England News Collaborative, John Denkoski. Join me in welcoming John to the stage. Thank you, Michael. Thank you so much. Thanks. I appreciate it. Hi, folks. I, I'm honored that you, that you thought that somebody who spent 30 years talking to people on the radio would know anything about humility. Um, <laughs> we'll see how that goes tonight. This is a really fascinating topic, and as we were preparing for this, I can honestly say I'm as energized by this conversation as I have been in in any of the uh, various conversations I've had with the Connecticut Forum over the years. So thank you for inviting me. Um, And I want to welcome our our panelists because we've got a lot of your questions and we've got a lot of other questions to ask them. So let me first welcome on David Gergen. He co-chaired with Madeleine Albright the Inclusive America Project at the Aspen Institute, which focused on enhancing religious pluralism. Uh, He's a professor of public service and co-director of the Center for Public Leadership at the Harvard Kennedy School. He serves as a senior political analyst for CNN. He served as White House advisor to four U.S. presidents of both parties, Nixon, Ford, Reagan, and Clinton. Uh, Please welcome David Gergen. Thank you. Rabbi Melissa Weintraub is uh, founding co-director of Resetting the Table, an organization dedicated to building meaningful dialogue and deliberation across political divides on Israel and the American Jewish community. She's co-founder and co-executive director of Encounter, which works to strengthen the capacity of the Jewish people to be agents of change in resolving the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Uh, Please welcome Rabbi Melissa Weintraub. And Ibu Patel is founder of Interfaith Youth Corps, which works to create an ecosystem of people and campuses designed to make interfaith cooperation the norm in America. He served on President Obama's inaugural Faith Council. He's a regular contributor to public conversation around religion in America and a frequent speaker on the topic of religious pluralism. Welcome, Ibu Patel. Mm 
So, so we've all been thinking, of course, about um, what, we, what we just heard, that we're not supposed to mix religion and politics. And maybe we'll just start there. I, and I'll start with you, Melissa. I mean, what do you think of that basic idea of, of the idea that we shouldn't talk about religion, we shouldn't talk about politics and polite company, because that's just too difficult. It makes it too messy. When you, when you hear that, what do you think? Well, one of the things that we often say at, at Resetting the Table, which is the, the organization I direct, is that we're not very interested in politeness, actually. Because we can, we can be perfectly polite, right? We can play nice and uh, be thinking about other people as malicious, bigoted, uh, delusional, dangerous, loony, but we just stop saying so out loud, right? So we want to get past what people are really thinking and get it all onto the table. We want to get to what really matters most to people, what's of ultimate concern to people, and have that be what we're talking about. Do, do, do you have a hard time getting people to go there, though, to break out of that shell that you kind of protect yourself with that says, oh, I, I, I don't want to say that thing, even if that's what I'm feeling? To get to the table or to say it once they're there? Well, to say it once they're there. I mean, it's, it takes both things, right? But, uh, but to actually get them out of that shell. Well, that's why we have six-month facilitation trainings to do, to do just that. But really, that's, that is the, the point, is to excavate what matters most to people and, and follow it and bring it into the room. Uh, so that is, uh, that's, that's how we design space and, and train our facilitators, to make sure that uh, we're going toward the heat and not away from it. We're actually leaning into the things that we're afraid to touch. Mm. David, how, how, how does that strike you, this idea of, of mixing religion, politics, about talking openly about these very difficult issues that we, we find so, I don't know, intractable sometimes, so difficult to talk about in America? Well, I think one of the things we need in the country right now in order to bridge various divides is more honest conversation. And Americans have traditionally been very moved and rooted in religion. You know, this has been in many ways the most religious a country in the Western world with in terms of professions of faith, not in terms of people actually going to church. But I think more importantly... <laughs> uh, that, that is a distinction, yes. Well, it is. See you at Easter. But more importantly, I, I think, you know, nations with the aspirations of, that we have uh, usually have some moral core at the center of things. And the best leaders are those who represent the, that moral core, represent the values at that moral core. And I think that, that in, it's inextricably bound up in many people's minds with their religious faith. What, what their ethics and their morale, their sense of morality is, is often comes, is often rooted in religion. And so, you know, I think, that, I think the most important work we can do is bringing people of different faiths uh, together, as Ibu does so successfully, and he's been, he's just a terrific American. I just can't tell you, I don't know Melissa, but Ibu has been one of my heroes in life for a long time. The, um, so nice. So, so it's clearly I, I successful think, given where we're at, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so, but I, and, and, well, you know, if, if we need to have conversations in our public discourse that are like conversations we have around our family dinner tables. You know, they're more honest, they're more interesting. Uh, not every family dinner table, but they, uh, <laughs> I, you know, we're not, I, I guess it's been an interesting question. We had a pool about how many minutes would it be before someone says the word Trump? The, uh, it's been like two and a half minutes. Like the, uh, but in any event, I do believe that they, it is healthy to have a more open conversation uh, that go to the core values 
uh, and let us talk about them. I think we will discover over time that even if we have religious differences, we, have, we share many values. Mm. But I, I think, Ibu, part of where that comes from in America, this idea that we're not supposed to talk about religion and politics, it, it, it goes back to a time at which when we weren't supposed to, supposed to talk about religion and politics, there were two maybe political poles and there was maybe a couple dominant religions. And now we're talking about uh, an American conversation that is much more multifaceted and much more difficult for a lot of people uh, who come from, say, a predominantly uh, Christian background in different parts of America to, to have. I mean, has, has that changed any in, in your mind, the idea that, that we do need to have this open conversation, but maybe people right now just aren't ready to have the open conversation that we, that we probably need to have? So I think, I think the big question is, does religious language, so, so G.K. Chesterton, the great British writer, said America is a nation with the soul of a church, right? By which he meant that, that religious language is everywhere. And I think an interesting question is, is religious language going to continue to, to sacralize the tribal divides? Mm. Or are we going to be able to use religious language to, to do a rebinding or to build a kind of a sacred canopy over, over a whole diverse democracy? America is literally unrecognizable without its religious communities and without the use of religious language. So uh, uh, at Harvard, um, uh, David, David's uh, Harvard colleague, Robert Putnam, writes a book in the 1990s called Bowling Alone, in which he points out that half of our civil society was started, generated, or run by religious communities. So our hospitals, our social service agencies, our private colleges, uh, between a half and two-thirds of America's 1,400 private four-year nonprofit colleges and universities were started by religious communities, seven of the eight Ivy League schools, for example. So it's unrecognizable without that, right? And it's unrecognizable with, without religious language, without Lincoln's better angels of our nature. We are an almost chosen people, again, also Lincoln, right? King's beloved community, Jane Addams' Cathedral of Humanity. In each of those cases, those leaders use religious language and symbols to build a sacred canopy over a whole. I think what we're seeing right now is what I'm calling the sacralization of tribes. So the fact that 81% of white evangelicals voted for Trump. There you go, David, four minutes in. Yeah, yeah. Right. And, and Muslims have been wholly symbolically adopted by the progressive left, even though an awful lot of traditional Islam fits very uncomfortably within that worldview, right? Muslims voted for George W. Bush over Al Gore by, by I think, 11 points in 2000, right? The, but now, the image of Muslims in this sacralized tribal divide is entirely the Shepherd Fairy poster young woman, American flag, hijab, resist. I think what we need is to, is to reweave our civic fabric, and I think that, that, that an American way of doing that it has a liberal use of religious language in a way that does not exclude non-religious people. Do, do you have a thought about that, Melissa? I, 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 see you, I see you maybe grappling with what he's saying. 
I am, I'm, I'm grappling too much to verbalize my thoughts out loud <laughs> in this audience. Please, please try. <laughs> well, the re reweaving the social fabric, absolutely. Yeah. I'm thinking about what it means to integrate religious language into that in a way that integrates non-religious people. So one of the, the kind of core tenets of our work is that, that often when we try to subsume our differences within something that doesn't actually include us all, that, uh, that people not only feel kind of coerced into that that, that, that actually we need to engage, we need to go toward our differences, often not away from them, to discover mm -hmm. shared interest and commonality and joint action. It's kind of paradoxical um, and it's, it's unexpected. Uh, that, uh, and that when people are kind of compelled to set their differences aside or to subsume themselves within a fabric that doesn't in fact include them, um, that uh, it gets in the way of their capacity to organically come to common ground <laughs> that they would have come to on their own. Mm -hmm. I certainly experience, you know, I think the establishment clause and the, the wall between church and state is very deeply ingrained in me at the level of primal sensibilities. I grew up in, in a, a, the evangelical heartland, and my first models of activism were, were my father kind of sweeping into my elementary school to explain that singing songs about Christ our Savior was neither neutral nor inclusive. I know that's not at all what you mean, Ibu. <laughs> and I, and I, I know that the, the religious, when you say inclusive religious fabric or religious language, you're not talking about a particular specific religion, but rather, um, well, I want to hear more about what you mean. Uh, so maybe I'll pass it back to you. So, yeah. We do a little back and forth. Yeah. Sure. So, so um, when, when I read George Washington's letter to the Hebrew congregation of Newport, Rhode Island, when Moses Sessions sends a letter to George Washington saying congratulations on the new government and the ratification of the Constitution, by the way, what's going to happen to my people? Right? We've been hated and hounded and harassed for centuries in Europe. Uh, what's going to happen to we Jews, of which there were 2,000 in the late 18th century in the new United States? And George Washington says, I give to bigotry no sank. We will give to bigotry no sanction and persecution no assistance. May the children of the stock of Abraham sit in safety under their own vine and fig and let there be none to make them afraid. I see myself in that. So George Washington is saying that to a Jewish leader in the late 18th century. Right? And George Washington's language elsewhere is replete with Christian imagery. And it's not hard for me to see myself in a smiley Muslim son of immigrants from India in that. Right? I, I think I'm saying a couple of things here. Number one, of, of, of all the identities that we talk about now, race, gender, class, ethnicity, nationality, sexuality, religion, the one that the founders got literally entirely right was religion. I mean, you could take what Thomas Jefferson said about religion in the late 18th century, and I would prefer that to an awful lot that's being said about religion now. So that's remarkable. Why would we lose, why would we lose that, Daniel Allen's word for this is patrimony, right? That is a gift, that language around religion and religious diversity that binds a people together is so precious at a moment of fracture. And, and I think that we should, you know, I think a lot now about, about like political philosophers who basically thought that diverse democracies were impossible. So John Courtney Murray says, how much diversity can a democracy stand and how much unity does it need? And that used to be a theoretical question and it's not anymore. Hmm. Right. If we are not able 
to articulate a common project for a diverse population, then what? Mm. I, I, David, you wanted to jump in? Well, yes, I do. Uh, listen, I, I agree absolutely that language is, is essential and, and care in language and respect for others through language uh, is a critical part of this. But in our Aspen, uh, when we had our Aspen gatherings and, and talked about religious pluralism, Ibo, I think you were the one who made a point that I found very striking. And that is that evidence shows that if you bring people together um, in, a, in a room to say we're going to talk about the differences in our religious beliefs, if you just start there, often the conversation turns worse, not better, mm -hmm. and that they actually become, feel more alienated and more, more different from the person they're talking to. Whereas if you, if you begin the, the group, bringing the group in for a common project, if they spend a day or two, for example, building Habitat for Humanity kind of house, and they have a common experience together, then when they sit down, they're much more prepared to respect each other because they, they know more about each other. Something we've discovered in the military, and one of the reasons that I and a number of others are so strongly in terms of dealing with these kind of issues so strongly in favor of national service. Mm -hmm. uh, and that is asking uh, or, or expect, creating an expectation, a culture that encourages people between 18 and 29 to give back at least a year to the country uh, in some social, you know, uh, progressive way, possibly two years. You could have one year as a follower, next year as a leader. Uh, and the, you know, what, the most, what brought the country together very successfully and the New Deal was the Civilian Conservation Corps. You know, it was something that Franklin Roosevelt proposed just to, uh, in, he, was, he was inaugurated in March of 1933. He proposed it that spring. And by that summer, why, the Congress actually worked well those days. By that summer, 250,000 young men were in the woods working together. And the CCC became uh, an iconic, program, most popular program of the New Deal. But it brought people together who had huge differences, just as the Second World War brought. When you had a salt and stall in the Second World War saluting some Polish kid from Brooklyn, it brought people together. And so I think it is language. I think the language is very important. But we also have to have action that creates new environments uh, for people to put down some of their differences. Mm. I, I'm wondering if we can touch on the, the, the key themes that we were asked to, to explore tonight, this idea of, of conviction and humility, about balancing uh, humility and the openness to, to the other and the other's ideas with the conviction that comes with your belief. I, I suppose we can start, Melissa, with, with the belief in, in a certain faith as, as opposed to starting with a belief that comes from some politics, and maybe we'll get to that in a moment. But how, how do you in your mind balance these ideas? of, on one hand, conviction, a belief in something, and on the other hand, humility, the, the openness to, to believe in others. I, I really appreciate the, the idea of, of Richard Mao, that we shouldn't actually set up a... Richard Mao is the dean of Fuller Theological Seminary and evangelical leader, and he talks about how we shouldn't actually set up a ping-pong between humility and conviction, but rather we should talk about humble conviction. Right, really, really mm. to see as, uh, as a matter of religious fidelity, how we treat each other is every bit as important as the positions that we take. 
And there's, there's tremendous intellectual resources in this regard grounded in, in Jewish faith. There's, um, I could give, give scores, uh, but, but the, the idea that we should be epistemically humble is very grounded Jewishly. We, we, every page of, of Jewish text is a negotiation, a great battle over policy and truth. And the, the idea is that that is what will get us to the most effective decision-making, that God's, God's voice echoed at Mount Sinai in 70 contradictory voices uh, preceded that we should study 49 arguments by which an argument is clean and 49 arguments by which the exact same argument is unclean, and then we should <laughs> study the 49 concerns and experiences and values at the heart of our opponent's thinking, and only then will we have a full understanding of the law. Uh, there's, there's, there's kind of countless uh, texts in this regard. So, uh, so, so part of the way I answer your question is yeah. about a kind of commitment to um, a kind of convicted civility, right? A convicted uh, humility that is grounded in, in, in a religious framework, in a religious text. In that, in that it's truly such a, a mature, for lack of a better word that I can think of, way of, of thinking about it. But I mean, currently, uh, Ibu, I think within politics, certainly, but within just society, the, the idea of, of not expressing your full conviction for something is shown as a sign of, of weakness, that there is a weakness to, to giving an inch uh, to, to the other. And that's something that seems to pervade an awful lot of society right now, don't you think? Yeah, I, I feel like it, it, it does at the cable news level. But, but the only way you have, and, and this is, uh, the only way you have a Little League team is if a bunch of parents decide that they're going to sponsor a, a Little League together, right? And there's a ton of compromise that you just do on a constant basis uh, on who's going to use the fields and how long games are going to go and who's going to get to play. And, and the interesting thing for me in like being a part of this is some of this is, in, is enshrined in rules and a lot of it is not. A lot of it is just kind of the, this ethos back and forth. Like we got 15 kids in the team and all 15 are going to play, right? And we're going to lose some games because of that. And there's no hard and fast rule. But this is just, this is just how we do things. And there's probably some parents who are two clicks you know, on this side of that. And some parents who are two clicks to this side of that. And you just make it. How else do you make a community work except unless you're willing to work together and kind of dance with each other a little bit? And my sense is... That's the American genius at the level of civil society. And it still is. And the question is, how do you escalate that up to the level of political discourse? Well, and and I, I certainly take your point that, that there is that, that constant battle happening at the cable news you know, level, the four <laughs> heads on the screen arguing with one another. But imagine if you lived in a world in which we were actually governed by someone who, you know, watched cable news all day long. Um, <laughs> I, I mean, get, getting it to move up to that level seems, I, I think, I'll ask you first, and I'd love your thoughts too on this, David, but it seems like an awful big, big pull. I mean, we, haven't, we have, to a certain extent, endorsed that politically through our actions, through our vote. We seem to like something about that way of, of governing and arguing. So, I think that you know, David's old colleague and boss, Bill Clinton, used to say, um, 
uh, America will do the right thing after it's exhausted doing all the wrong things, <laughs> right? Um, and I, maybe this is my optimism showing, but, but I just think that, I mean, I don't know how else to say this, but when, when ugliness is so clearly on display, look at this and you're like, this is not the world I wanna live in. Mm-hmm. I, you know, and I just think that that's, there's, and I don't like it, I don't like that attitude when I agree with what the person is saying. And I don't think I would have said that two years ago. Mm. Right, and I think that that is how I have changed. That, you know, there's a, the classic Jewish story of, of, Rab, of Rabbi Hillel and Shammai, uh, with kind of a classic story, you know, Melissa can say this in six languages probably, but, a, but a, a classic story of two great rabbis and their students who would argue with each other, and somebody says at one point, you know, which, which argument is right? And, and there's a, the voice of God descends and says, uh, the, both of these are true. Both of these are legit, but, but I would choose the school of Hillel because the people are nicer. Mm. Right? Huh. And, and, you know, niceness in a democracy is like William Carlos Williams' red wheelbarrow, right? So much depends on it, and you don't know how much you need it until it's absent. Mm. David? Uh, <clears throat> listen, I think that... Uh, the call, the hunger in populations for a, a leader of conviction depends a great deal on what the context may be mm. that you find yourselves in. When you have a population that is anxious, that's fearful, that is not moored in, in values, that doesn't know where things are coming at, you know, they feel, they feel a little afraid and anxious, they're more likely to turn to a strong man or someone who represents conviction. Uh, whereas if, if the times are good and you're not threatened, you don't feel threatened, you may go to another way. To trivialize this, when, when Bob Dole ran against uh, Bill Clinton, uh, we knew from the beginning that Bob Dole was not going to win. But I will tell you, in the Cold War, had Clinton run against Dole, Dole would have won. And one of the ways we saw that was if you, there was a question being put to the public. Okay, I'm going I'm to name a political candidate. Tell me the first dog that comes to your mind when, I hear, when you heard that name. And when people heard Bob Dole, the number one thing that came to their mind was German Shepherd. Mm. When Bill Clinton, Cocker Spaniel. You know? <laughs> when you're in tough times, you want, the, you, want a, you, you, you want the German Shepherd. And when good times are rolling, I'll take the Cocker Spaniel, thank you. Uh, so, you know, but right now we're going through times that are fearful for many, in many countries, and in country after country, the danger is that publics are turning to strong men, that democracies, one after another, were seen toppled by elected democratic leaders who take their countries toward authoritarianism, uh, and that's the danger we're facing here in this country now, whether we could move in a more, more and there, there are already, if you look at the indices of what when democracies move into authoritarian, it's when, when the leaders begin uh, uh, delegitimizing the institutions, say the Justice Department or the FBI or the CIA, when the leaders begin attacking the, the legitimacy of the, the media, 
so that they're no longer believed and that, and that so that there's no set of common beliefs or set of common facts. You know, as Pat Moynihan a long time ago said, everyone is, con is entitled to their own opinions, but no one is entitled to their own facts. And we're living now in a, in a country which increasingly, you're entitled to make up whatever the hell you want to make up and you call it your facts. And it's confusing to people and it, and it is really destabilizing. I think it's discrediting the press. Uh, and we also know that democracies toward, turn toward authoritarianism when the political leaders begin to tip the system so that they stay in power or they enhance their power. And that's done through gerrymandering in this country. And we are gerrymandered just right up to our gills, and, and you can, and it's, and it's become, you know, I think a really negative part of our politics. So this whole notion of conviction, I do think has to be seen in some context. There are times when you want conviction people. Margaret Thatcher was a conviction politician. Ronald Reagan was a conviction politician. You may disagree with their policies, but the publics in those countries at the time like that, and they didn't break out of all the norms. They didn't attack all the institutions. They respected the, 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 un, the written as well as the unwritten rules of democracy. But now we're seeing people come up who are much more like extremist demagogues who are coming up in, this, in our system and in overseas in particular. You can see it in a lot of countries in Europe now. Can I jump in here Absolutely, without being please. called on? Okay. Please. Uh, I, Whatever you want. Okay, great. Okay. <laughs> There, there's a couple things I want to I throw yeah. into the mix, and, and one is that there's, there's a tremendous amount of analysis and data collection around what happened in the past pre presidential election, uh, and uh, whether people were or weren't embracing, as you said, this model of the strong man, you said the strong man, you said, of, of certainty and a kind of bombastic spirit. Uh, we, um, we immersed for many weeks in areas of the country that went for Trump, including areas that flipped. Obama, Trump, uh, and interviewed hundreds of people. And, and I want to bring this into the mix because there's a tremendous amount of projection that happens often in, in ways that we're not aware of. And we heard from, we didn't hear from anyone that they were seeking authoritarianism or, or law and order. That doesn't mean that they weren't, right? People, don't, people aren't always aware of their underlying motivations, but I think it's tremendously important to listen to people on their own terms, particularly in the fragmented and ideologically siloed world that we're, we're living in. And so many people talked about grievance and disgruntlement and a sense of that uh, th their relationship to Trump's language was mostly one of repugnance and pulling the trigger re reluctantly, but, but having a sense that he would bring a sledgehammer to Washington, that he was an anti-establishment candidate. I mean, there was, a, there was a lot of variety, of course, among the hundreds of interviews. Uh, but, but I think it's essential to bring that, that into the mix because I find in um, a lot of circles there's a lot of uh, generalizations made about, about based on uh, projections and assumptions of what kind of leadership people wanted when they voted him in, when they chose him as their, as their leader. So, uh, so that's one thing I wanted to throw in. Another thing I want to uh, throw in is that uh, Political leaders are disincentivized from being humble in all kinds of ways, and we've named some of them, gerrymandering and campaign finance is another lever. There's a lot of the, the, the role that money plays in politics, negative advertising, uh, the, the way that primaries are structured is, is also something that disincentivizes political leaders from a kind of humble leadership rather than, than attacking others with whom they disagree. So there's all kinds of institutional reforms needed, but we, we have, we, we've created a political system that doesn't reward 
leaders from being uh, that which this, this panel is calling for. Well, can I read something that you wrote back to you, uh, sure. having to do with the, the, the conversation that we're having around this? Because all, the, the, the research that you've done uh, clearly dug up a lot of the, the truths of how people were feeling around, around that election. But one of the things we, we want to talk about tonight is, is the conversations that we can have in, in the wake of that. You wrote, it's in liberals' interest not only to fight, protest, and condemn, but also to extend ourselves, to touch down in the middle of nowhere, to grapple with the sensibilities of, quote, flyover country. To pursue empathy is not to sing kumbaya, it is rather to overcome the objectification of people whose lived experience we need to understand to uncover our own blind spots and increase the likelihood that our arguments and challenges will land and be taken in. Whether we're drawn to the table for the sake of relationship, insight, or political expediency, Heavenly argument means listening as a precondition for being heard. So it's a, it's a lovely thought, and it's something, it's something that I think we probably need to figure out how to bring to our overall political conversation more. I will say, though, living here in the, in the liberal Northeast, the way that we grappled with that is we... Um, I did a panel discussion uh, about this issue with the Connecticut Forum not too long ago. We parachuted in reporters from Washington and New York to try to observe what people in West Virginia were thinking, and, um, and it didn't necessarily go that well. I, I'm, <laughs> I'm wondering if you can expand on that, about, about that idea of, and I'd love to hear everyone's thoughts on this, about expanding our own blind spots, about having that conversation with, with someone uh, in this difficult time about these, uh, about these issues of conviction. <laughs> in politics. You said many things. <laughs> so so, so the, the, the last part was about expanding our own, our own blind spots. Yeah. yeah. I'm going to start with something you said in the beginning, actually. Um, yeah. you, you, know, you, the, you, you read this back, and this was actually before we did the project that I was just describing. And um, um, one of our first days in, in Wisconsin and, uh, and Iowa, my husband was sitting around a table with a bunch of uh, evangelicals, and he said that he had taught at Wesleyan, and uh, you know, in the middle of nowhere, right? Which is a phrase <laughs> that's there, and kind of looked around. Oh, the middle of nowhere, you know? Just even even the language that we use, we don't we don't realize the extent to which um, we've internalized language that we're uh, that is, is offensive to others because we we don't have the empathy of what it's like to be them, and that's. That, that for me, like part of the confronting the blind spots is coming to see what it's like to be other people. Mm. You know, like Ira Glass has this beautiful teaching about how we can have mastered a lot of information and still, de still deal with all the information and analysis we have in a really flawed way because we don't know what it's like to be other people. So we can have a lot of analysis and not know what it's like to be a soldier in Iraq or a Sunni w waking up hating the Shia or a tear-gassed protester or a soldier doing night arrests or you know, to bring it back to the, the U.S. context, what it's like to be a rural white person without a college degree listening to new, newscasters talking about rural white people without college degrees as if they don't count. Mm -hmm. What it's like to be a religiously conservative academic surrounded by people who talk about religious conservatives as, as if they're buffoons, right? Until we've heard that story that paints a picture of this is what it would be like to be that person, uh, we, we often deal with information we've been given in a flawed way. So... I think that, that I, and we brought 36 people with us, our team experienced often that we were drawn into a kind of empathic knowledge that changed our analysis. But mm. it was really that empathy for what is it like to be other people that changed us. Mm. I, I wonder, and I want to get to some audience questions here in a moment. I wonder though, Ibu, if, if we're at a point though where on a college campus or just in, in society in general, it's hard for people 
to, to go to the point where, where they want to hear from the actual person who has the views if the views that they're espousing seem so repugnant or perhaps so difficult to stomach that, that the initial impulse, as, as Melissa you know, started this paragraph with, it's, you know, it's a liberal interest not only to fight, protest, protest, and condemn, but a lot of people think that the fight, the protest, the condemn is what we need to be doing right now in the face of so many um, of terrible things. So, I mean, I think that this is, this is one of the ways that religion plays a really uh, uh, a powerful role, especially through archetypes. Because an awful lot of what inspiring religious leaders did was to, was to stick their chin into a place where it was going to get smacked and to take the righteous road, mm. right? I mean, so, so the obvious examples, right, are kind of King and Gandhi. And basically to say, through, through my righteous example, in, uh, it, it, we will maintain a posture of decorum and nonviolence in the face of Bull O'Connor's dogs, mm -hmm. literally, right? Um, and, and those kind of examples, and, and right now, it's, it is un... Yeah. With with the exceptions of, of of the Charlottesvilles, it is rhetoric that you that might be sometimes somewhere between uncomfortable and really really ugly and racist that you might be facing, but it's religious archetypes that highlight the great Edward Markham line: uh, "You drew a circle that drew me out, heretic rebel, a thing to flout, but love and I had the wit to win. We drew a circle that drew you in." Uh, th there's, there's so much to get to, and, and uh, the folks in the audience gave us a lot of questions. So starting now, I'm going to pepper some of these in, and I, I want to uh, send the first one to David here. Um, for political figures that you've worked with, um, how does religion influence policy? Well, it's easier to say how it influences behavior. Uh, and I, I do think that political figures I've known who have uh, taken their religion or their spirituality seriously, uh, I do think that that has given them a sense of a higher calling uh, and religion has been anchoring for them. Their spirituality has been anchoring. Uh, so I don't, you know, I, 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 I'm very happy to have someone with religious beliefs you know, in a high office. I, th I think there's some very positive things about that. Where I think it becomes much uh, more problematic uh, is when people try to impose their religious views on others. And that goes to the question of abortion uh, and you know some similar issues where I think we are going to live together a lot more peacefully if we sort of have a more live and let live quality rather than we're going to impose on you our views one way or the other. Because I think that, that, you know, that we ought to be very, we need to show a lot of restraint and how we legislate, how we lead. There are times when you know you can do things in politics that are permissible, but they're wrong. Mm -hmm. You know, there are some things that are just illegal, but there, in many cases, we have unwritten rules. And it does seem to me that in a society that is as complex as ours, I mean, we're the first, in effect, we're the first global nation. We're the first nation that has people from all over the world who come to live here. And we're trying to do something now that's very difficult. As we move toward a society 
in which the whites who have been the dominant become the minority. We're going to become a multi-ethnic country, regardless. I'm not aware of any strongly multi-ethnic country that has survived as a democracy. It is hard work, it's challenging, and yet if you embrace it, it's wonderful. You know, diversity can be our friend. Clinton used to say, diversity must not be our enemy, diversity must be our friend. And, we, and our challenge is, how are we going to create a country that holds together with so many different strands? And that's gonna require a certain kind of respect for, and empathy for, but also a sense of, I'm not going to try to impose on you my religious beliefs. Mm -hmm. I, I really think that that's important to have a cohesive and, you know, a, 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 a working democracy. But, but I, to Ibu's earlier point, in, in your work, you can take the, the chance to say, I will put up with being traitor and alien because this is, this is my work. The people, David, that you've worked with, the politicians, to be called a traitor by their base isn't just something they have to put up with. It's something that gets them kicked out of office, potentially. I mean, is there a political problem with the way this all works sure. that, that makes it but if you, you impossible know, Harry, for them to make that Yeah, that But Harry Truman used to say, if you can't stand the heat, stay out of the kitchen. You know, so it goes with the territory. If you, people who run for office are asking us to entrust power to them. Power we may have, and we pass it to them, and we have a certain amount of, they have a certain accountability for that, that we ought to hold them to that standard. So, you know, there, this, is a, this has been by nature a rambunctious society, a rambunctious democracy right from the beginning. You go back to the debates among the founders, and you find they were going after each other, hammer and tongs. Uh, and, and you know, and we 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 talk about you know in the run and the run up to the Civil War and Civil War, how you know the Senator from Massachusetts was caned in Congress. That happened many times in Congress. That people were beating each other up. Uh, it, it's remarkable. But what has usually been the case is that at the end of the day, people have understood you've got you can have your fights. And you can have you can knock each other around, but at the end of the day, you have to solve problems, and you've got to come together to do that. And you, that means you've got to retain a certain amount of respect for those people. And the problem we're facing today is that increasingly, people who were once our adversaries or our rivals are now looked upon as our enemies, our mortal enemies. And when you start treating people like your mortal enemy, you cannot compose your differences. Mm -hmm. And that's why I just think that this is, this is a, the questions we're talking about tonight are going to become more serious over time, not less serious. Mm -hmm. Melissa, I saw you writing things down. Do you want to oh. jump in? I, <laughs> in her head. Well, I, was in, I was in conversation with Ibu uh, in my mind a few moments ago, and now I'm in conversation with David. That's how it goes. Oh. <laughs> uh, well, that, uh, originally I was, I was thinking a lot about, about what you were saying and, and thinking that, um, you know, I think it's important actually to, to give recognition to those who say that dialogue is navel-gazing irrelevance at best. 
and that um, at worst that it actually reinforces power asymmetries that can only be redressed through agitation and adversarialism. And I certainly make community with a lot of people who think that giving validation, that, 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 that there is an element of what we do that gives validation to things that are repugnant and that should only be fought and protested. Um, mm. and, uh, and I think that, that's, that it's important to give recognition to that perspective and to consider it. I also think it's important to recognize that a lot of people in this moment in time are being re-traumatized by things that are happening to them, that it's not fair to ask them, certainly as individuals, um, to d build bridges with those that they do see you know, as doing them harm, right? Not, not just as ideological opponents, as people who have rival ideas, but as people who are actually uh, causing, causing them harm. So those are, those are pieces of you know, recognition I wanted to give. Um, you, know, you gave, you gave uh, beautiful religious examples of, of King, and uh, we could throw Mandela into the mix. I'm sure all of us could rhapsodize about the examples of uh, Mandela as a leader who, uh, who studied Boer history, right? Who, who was able to speak in a language that said, uh, even to, to those who had been his jailers, uh, that, um, you know, I, I'm going to recognize your, your culture, your stories, your heritage, what's beautiful about you, and like, the spirit of there is nothing wrong with you that, it, that can't be fixed by what is right with you. Like, there, that, that, that redemptive leadership is often much more uh, transformative than that which castigates and chastises. Um, but not every, you know, it's, it's not for everyone. That bridge building work isn't, isn't for everyone. Um, it's something that I want to call people to um, mm -hmm. because uh, I don't think that we're going to confront, insofar as there is bigotry and racism and, and all kinds of ills in our country, we're not going to correct them by calling out or even calling in, uh, which has, have become the languages of the moment. There's so much shaming in, in, in those languages that, um, that keeps uh, us from, it keeps our circles too small. And, and I think after the 2016 election, a lot of people kind of had this, there was this anti-structure moment where people recognized our circles were too small, and then it quickly faded, and everyone's circles got small again. Uh, we found in, in engaging conservatives and, and rural people and working class people who are never at the table and meeting them where they were, right? Walking into gun shops and hunting clubs and bars where we knew that they were going to frequent at what time of day and building relationships, uh, that we were able to build dialogue forums where there were more conservatives and more rural people, more working class people than there were liberals. And not only that, but they gave standing ovations at the end of the forums because they were so hungry to be there. They just had thought that going to such settings was going to mean being subjective to a firing squad and shamed. And so when they felt that they could actually show up and be all of who they were and not be called repugnant, mm -hmm. um, then they just, they clapped. <laughs> they stood up and clapped. You know, they, they, there was a, a hunger for this. So I, I just want to super affirm this, right? I mean, like this is, so the, the classic Willie Sutton line, you know, why do you rob banks? Well, that's where the money is, right? So if you run a vegetarian restaurant, don't be surprised when meat eaters don't show up. Right? So Melissa is really smart. She's like, I, you know, I disagree with a bunch of people on guns. There's a red-blue divide in this country. Well, I'm going to go to a gun shop. There's probably some people there I disagree with. Probably an interesting conversation to be had. Right? So, like, that's, it, it's, what, what I love about that is, like, the simple, straightforward, no doneness, Right? But frankly, there's not that many people I know who do it. Right? Mm -hmm. Ibu and I talked just briefly before we came out tonight, and both of us had recently picked up the same book uh, in preparation for tonight. And so it's a book called Political Tribes, and it's by Amy Chu, who is at Yale. She's the tiger mom 
there, and it's a really a wonderfully interesting book. He was gotten a lot further through it than I have, uh, but she makes the argument that it's not just a left-right divide anymore. That what's splitting apart the poor are issues of race, mm -hmm. but what's splitting apart whites are issues of class. Uh, and that has been certainly true as income inequality has increased dramatically. And we increasingly have a white working class uh, population that's under enormous pressure. Both, you know, Ibu earlier was citing Robert Putnam, and he wrote a book about the white working class in this country. A conservative, Charles Murray, wrote a book about the white working class in this country. They both came to the same conclusion. Uh, and that was that the white working class in this country was really an extreme danger, that it used to be the, the folks that helped to keep our society glued together. You know, they, they, they married and stayed married. They, they were church, or they went to synagogues, but they were religious. Their kids went to school and usually stayed in school longer than, than, than the parents had. Uh, they, were, they were kids who went out and fought, or fought our wars in many cases. But this was a well... This was a working, working class. In recent years, it's gone just the other way. Their divorce rates have skyrocketed. The children born out of wedlock have skyrocketed. The number of, of, of who stay in school has gone down. They're no longer churched. They, and, and by the way, they have an opioid crisis. Uh, and it's, it's a group that's in real trouble. These were Democratic voters. They were on the left. They have moved over to Trump because he's a strong man who is offering uh, solutions that we, we would look upon as uh, illusory at best uh, but nonetheless, and promises that are illusory. But nonetheless, the class divide has gotten worse. Uh, and there is a real, and she argues that if you really talk to people in the working class, they feel that in effect they've been robbed of their dignity by the upper class, that they're looked down upon, they're treated as second-class citizens, this, and this is, they're not being listened to. Uh, and that is a real issue that goes beyond left and right. It does go to class, and it does seem to me it introduces new questions that we haven't had to deal with and, and, uh, until now. Hmm. Just yeah, quick, uh, so anybody knows this? Uh, then I got married pregnant, and man, that was all she wrote. And for my 18th birthday, I got a union card and a wedding coat. Anybody know that? Yeah. It's, that's it's, Springsteen. It's Bruce Springsteen. 1980, The River. Okay? So that song was written as a lament. Mm -hmm. And think about how many people right now would do anything for a wedding coat and their 18th birthday and a union card and a 40-year guaranteed job. Right? That song is written as a, here's how confining white working class factory life is. Right? And that's now a dream. 40 years later, that's a dream. <laughs> but we, we had a narrative in this country for that set of people. I went to school with a bunch of these folks, right? Graduate from high school, Try not to get a girl pregnant. Don't commit a felony. You'll be fine by the time you're 26. That's literally what their parents told them. I'm a brown guy, so my parents are like, if you don't get straight A's, you're going to be a garbage man. Right? <laughs> that, that's the race distinction. But, and the funny thing is, like, like, the economy turns in my favor. Mm -hmm. The economy 
the economy turns in my favor, mm-hmm. right? The story that their parents told them turns out to, it melted. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah, and, and to really get out and, and experience the world and, and break out of that, what is it? The other song is it's, it's a temple of losers when you're going out of here to win. You know, getting out on the road and, and seeing the world, that's also something that's, that's out, of their, out of their grasp right now. Um, what, what uh, Melissa, do you think is the role of social media and the internet culture in the decline of intellectual humility? <laughs> Sounds like there's some audience members that want to answer that one. <laughs> uh, well, you know, there, the pieces of this have been studied about the kind of online machinery of anger, the, the likelihood that people will uh, retweet something that's angry. It's, it's, there's far greater likelihood that we will click, that we will engage, we will like, comment on angry posts. Joy is a distant second, it turns out, in the studies. Um, so we're, we're all actually reinforcing this. Of course, you know, there's the famous filter bubbles and ways that uh, we get confirmation of what we already think and social media is primed to uh, position us to, to, to only take in that which, uh, the ideas and information that verifies what we think. And then we have an, uh, the online dis- disinhibition effect of what, what happens when we're not looking at someone's face, which is uh, inherently on some level tempering us. And you know, there's a Jewish teaching that when I look into the face of another person, then I have to confront the limits of what I know. Because, you know, I look in your face and I, I bump up against my limits, right? The face is infinite. I look at your face, I know I'm not the edge of the world. Online, we don't encounter, you know, it's called Facebook, but we don't actually encounter anyone else's faces. Uh, so, um, you know, the, the question didn't ask about prescriptions, but, but um, I, would, I would call out to, you know, to push everyone or encourage everyone, invite everyone in the audience. Like, this is actually something that we can all do. And, and, and um, counter the, the kind of deleterious effect of, of social media. It's, it's actually very easy to get past one's filter bubble. Mm-hmm. Um, I now get uh, all kinds of notifications about evangelical Bible camps um, advertisements for them. And I'm very proud of that fact, you know, and, and it didn't take much. It just t- took actually having uh, an evangelical network and having them comment on things that I, I've posted and me comment on things that they post. And, uh, and, and now I get advertisements for evangelical Bible camps. Um, and uh, another, another like very easy but palpable thing that people can do, um, there's a whole bridge building ecosystem that is online. And given that, that you know, the, the data shows that we are much more likely to retweet or to engage with or to like or comment on things that trigger our rage rather than our joy or inspiration, I encourage everyone to go and engage with the bridge building space in social media and, uh, and, and, and it really like it, comment it, um, connect to it, Ibu's uh, Interfaith Youth Course Facebook page and Resetting the Tables Facebook page, um, because bringing attention to the bridge building space and amplifying joy and inspiration and connection among people is one small thing that everyone can do. Mm. Just to build on that briefly, for purposes of this conversation, I think the, the research that's particularly relevant is the degree to which a serious expo- uh, engagement with social media as a child reduces the amount of empathy in that child. And if you're really going to help bridge building in the next generation, that's a serious problem. And we already have enough differences. Mm. Eva, do you have a thought on this? Social media is a cesspool on Mars. That's that's my thought. (laughs) (laughs) 
we, <laughs> so I, I knew someone would, would want to ask this question. Um, I have an uncle who's very, very conservative and uh, always wants to talk politics at Thanksgiving. Um, these people only get together at Thanksgiving for some reason. Um, it always ends in an argument. How do I engage in a way that is more productive, or should I just not talk about it? Okay, who wants to tackle the Thanksgiving conversation question? Or let's just let's put outside Thanksgiving. It's even broader than that. I mean, hopefully you see your uncle more often than that. How do you engage? How do you have a conversation that's more productive? I'll, I'll take it. Um, the, first, the first thing that came to mind, um, I think it was uh, Ron Heifetz, who you probably teach, teach with, had a series of tips that he gave right after the election for how do you talk to people with whom you disagree. And number one was, don't start with your family. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, uh, but, but, it, but in seriousness, I'll go back to the text that, uh, that, that Ibu brought before about these two schools of Jewish thought that were duking it out for... for three years, and as you taught it, the school that won, uh, that, that we said, we follow this school, we have to legislate as an operative necessity, we can't go both ways, so we embrace this school, um, because they're nice, as you put it, right? But they, there's actually a series of verbs given to describe their conduct and their approach to argument, and I wanna highlight um, one of those verbs, because it's at the heart of what we see. It's really the basic build, building block um, of constructive conversation across disagreement, and that is the ability to reconstruct what actually matters to someone else in a way that's not caricatured or distortion. There's so much temptation to speak to the, the worst version of what others think, uh, that the demons of what they think, rather than the most sophisticated, eloquent, and generous version of what they think. And we have to work at it. I mean, this is, this is actually a skill that we teach again and again. We've taught it probably to 16,000 people, uh, people uh, on different sides of volatile issues from guns to immigration to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict really working at building this muscle of being able to not acknowledge, I think you're right, but actually even understand what each other's talk, talking about and demonstrate it. Mm -hmm. um, so this, it's, it's conflict resolution 101, reflection mirroring, but it's actually incredibly hard to access when we need it most. And around the dinner table, if we really make the effort to understand what are the underlying motivations and, and sources of meaning for someone that we disagree with and show them we get it, we will often uh, invite flexibility, receptivity, connection, recognition, all of the things that we're going for. But the, the first uh, example, though, you gave is something that came up at, at, at dinner, and it, it comes up, I think, a lot for people who engage in, in interfaith dialogue. And, and uh, my dinner companion said something like this, that it, it, is, it is easier sometimes to sit down with people of different faiths or different beliefs uh, in a setting in which I know I have differences and I'm going to confront them in that way versus sitting down with my family or people who are part of my tribe with whom I have some very specific differences. And is there, do you think there's some truth to that, that we, we have a harder time having that conversation within our family, whatever the family is, because it's so close to us? Yeah, and so in the, world of, in, the, in the world of interfaith engagement, right, the, the reason for this is that if, 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 you, uh, if your principal symbol is the cross, and mine is the crescent, I recognize as a, as a premise the difference in symbol and orientation. I, have, I know that that exists. And now I'm able to listen to, to the meaning that you give to this symbol, knowing that I'm not gonna agree with it, mm -hmm. right? And that, that creates a certain space and climate. 
if we both orient around the crescent or the Quran and you give it a meaning that I disagree with, yes. we have, now we're in an argument. Now mm. we're in an argument, yeah. right? Um, and to, be, to begin by saying that this symbol, this crescent or this Quran allows for multiple legitimate meanings, it sounds all intellectually nice, right? And by the way, I happen to hold to this, but then you have to justify why your particular meaning, why you hold to your particular meaning. You have to listen to other people tell you that your meaning isn't the best way of deriving meaning from this, et cetera, et cetera, right? And, and when it comes to like something very basic, like having kids, right? So, so you know, we're, we're, I'm an Ismaili Muslim, it's a small Shia community of Islam. My wife is a Sunni Muslim. We're both politically and theologically liberal, right? We don't drink alcohol, we don't eat pork, et cetera. So when my kids run into a Muslim who prays five times a day, they're, they're like, why don't we do that? And when they run into a Muslim that drinks alcohol, they're like, how come, you, how come we don't do that? Right, so that's not a, that's not something that they ask about Christians. They know we don't go to church, mm-hmm. right? But when they run into a Muslim that does Muslim things differently, it implicates you in a in a much more personal way. Can, can you apply that? I think to the political world, David. I mean, there's some there's some aspect of that that's true within the orthodoxy of of the Democratic Party, the Republican Party, within conservative and liberal, in which there is. Um, there is fighting within those groups because specifically of that, that closeness, or closeness or that sameness that, that we're talking about here in religion. I, I don't quite understand the question. Well, I, I, I wonder if we have, if, if we have more uh, political fraction in part because it is, uh, it's not just a left and a right divide. There are great divisions now within a liberal or a progressive community. There's great divisions Clearly, if you just look at the Republican Party, there's about 20 different things that you could say what a Republican is supposed to be. And it seems like that, that is in some ways um, similar to, to this religious example in which um, we, we are fighting with people who we basically agree with because uh, we're not exactly sure what, what, the, um, what the orthodoxy should be of, of the party or of the belief. Yeah, I, I think that's right. Uh, what, what's happening in politics is that both parties are fracturing within, their, within the parties. That first happened with the Republican Party as it drifted further and further to the right over the last 20 or 30 years. Uh, and you, know, you, you don't find many Republicans in Connecticut right now, right? It's not a, you know, it's occasionally a Republican will get elected, but it's a much bluer state uh, than it was. Um, and, and now the same thing is happening with the Democratic Party. It hasn't gone as far out. It hasn't become as extreme. But there, you know, the center hasn't held in mm. uh, either party. And, and that's a real problem. If the Democrats, the Democrats could normally expect to win in 2020 in a presidential election given what's been happening. If they put up a candidate who represents the heart and soul of the party off to the Bernie Sanders wing, they could lose. You know, Donald Trump could get reelected. Uh, I don't think it's a high possibility, or, but I think it's at least 20 to 25 percent mm-hmm. chance. Uh, and so the parties have divided. But come, I, this this business of having a <laughs> within families and the Thanksgiving question. Mm-hmm. 
every family, I, almost every friend I have, including my own family, we've got this question. How to deal, there is someone in the family who either is quietly or in publicly, publicly for Trump. And, it, and there are real differences in values. I find to some extent it depends on how different members of the family have wound up, you know, where they find themselves on the scales that, that Ibu's been talking about. And it's, it's the people who, you know, the, the child or the brother or sister whose life is, isn't as smooth and is not as financially successful and so forth, and they've turned to Trump more easily. And I, I, I know everybody, I think a lot of people are struggling with this question because they, they care. I don't think they're, I don't, I think we have to be very simple about this. I think we have to communicate very firmly to a family member, I don't care what you think, I still love you. You may need help as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> <laughs> but I still love you. <laughs> and don't forget your sense of humor. You, you know, both, you know, everybody can be self, uh, uh, you know, if you make fun of yourself, it helps to, it helps to, to make it easier on everybody. Mm. I just think it's got to be, there are some things that are more important than what your disagreements are. Mm. And family is one of them. We, we have just a couple of minutes left in our conversation. I'd, I'd love for you all to maybe leave our, our crowd with some, some hopefulness. Some, um, <laughs> it's always nice to end, end with that. And, and perhaps, David, David, I'll ask you to go first. Give us an example of, of something either that, that you're working on, someone who, who you believe shows some of these traits that we've been talking about in public life, or, or something that makes you feel hopeful that we're getting closer to, to the type of, of conversation or resolutions that, that we're aiming well, for tonight. Let me, let, let me just say that I, I have the privilege of working in a classroom with a lot of kids, and I see a lot of young people uh, at different universities. And I, I'm, for all the problems we find with millennials, and, and there are some serious problems, especially with the working <laughs> class, there, there are a group of people coming through the millennial population and a little younger that are knock your socks off and are really disgusted with the kind of politics we have, the kind of society we have, and are, and are very determined to change it. And, and you know, let me just say quickly, run off this. Look, I'm very encouraged by the Parkland kids. You know, I, that, that is, you know, they represent something that is, is hope coming from a generation. And we, we had uh, seven of them come visit our campus. And I spent time with them about three weeks ago. And what, one of the things that I discovered about the high school, I kept on wondering, how do these kids turn out to be so uh, idealistic, so you know, fluent, but also to understand our, our political system as well? As they, I mean, they were really, it's really very impressive. It turns out they have a great civics program in our high school. Mm -hmm. You know, and too many of our high schools, we've sort of let that go by the board. They also have a good arts program. A number of those students are in drama and that sort of thing. So I'm very encouraged about that, the Parkland kids and what they represent. Secondly, I'm very encouraged about women uh, and, the, and the women coming off the sidelines uh, to, to assert themselves. And I think we may have some real breakthroughs here in the years ahead. Two years ago in the election cycle of 2016, there were about 1,000 women who called Emily's List to ask for help. Emily's List is a national organization that if you're a woman and you want to run for office, whether it be local, state, or national, uh, you can come to them and you can get financial help, you get, you get some helpful you know, tips on how to get your campaign off the ground, you get some help in getting people who can run your campaigns and all that sort of thing. It's really helpful. So about a thousand women called 
two years ago. In this election cycle so far, 34,000 women. That's, that's true. That is going to change our politics. Mm. It really is a single, it's one of the biggest, biggest things going on right now. But the last group I want to talk about briefly because it goes back to the national service point and why Melissa and I and, and, and others are for national service. And that is, I've had the opportunity over the last several years to have a number of students come through our classrooms who are veterans coming back from Afghanistan and Iraq uh, and, and peeling off their uniforms and then deciding in their own minds, at some point I'm going to get into politics and help fix this country. They remind me very much of the World War II generation. And right now we have about, there are 150 veterans running for Congress this cycle. So that, twice what it was last time. And it's, uh, these are post 9-11 veterans, they're young veterans. Uh, and I'm inv very involved in trying to raise money and help get these young uh, veterans elected on both sides of the aisle because they have fought under the same flag, they've worked under the same flag, they are much more willing to work together in politics, they're much more bipartisan in nature. We're asking for oaths from, we're asking to take a pledge, but we're out raising money. Uh, Conan Lamb just won Pennsylvania. He was, and he won as a Democrat, you know, took that seat unexpectedly because he was a young veteran who was business friendly, but he's a strong Democrat. And he won that unexpectedly. And you'll find a lot of the veterans are like that, but we're supporting people on both sides of the aisle. And the idea is, if you can create a, a, a working coalition in the center of politics, they could be the swing vote in the House. It's going to be hard. It'll take a while to get it done. But I'm just telling you, these veterans, men and women, Republican and Democratic, a lot of Democrats right now, uh, represent real hope. Mm -hmm. And they're joining with forces with women and others who are going to get elected. I think our politics could change. I'm, I'm increasingly, I'm, I'm a short-term pessimist. <laughs> it's going to be hell getting there. But I'm a long-term optimist. I think the country is going to be in much better shape. The bottom line, help is on the way. Help is on the way. <laughs> and thank you, listeners, for tuning in to the Why We Argue podcast, which I remind you is produced by the University of Connecticut's Humility and Conviction in Public Life Project with generous support from the John Templeton Foundation. You can follow the project on Twitter and on Facebook at at Public Humility. That's one word, Public Humility. Thank you so much, and bye for now.